bum, 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 bum. Can I just say I love that music? <laughs> hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know this show is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. And if I do anything well, I think I'm darn good at unpacking their brains to help you live your dreams and career in hobby and in life. My guest today is Lila Jana. Right now you're saying if you are anywhere near the social entrepreneurship world, you know her name. She is a human dynamo in that space. After starting a career in management, she bailed on that shit to pursue her passions like many of you are listening. Uh, and that passion full-time has created not one, but two companies, first of which is a company called Sama Source. Uh, that's probably where you know her from, a nonprofit that lifts people out of poverty via hiring them to do, actually, to say data work, might be that might be the right way of talking about it. I was going to say to do digital work, but I think it, it's focused largely on data, data entry, and these folks are from poverty-stricken countries. She does an amazing job of connecting that unused resource with the needs that we have here in the West and also helps the companies and the economies in those countries kick ass. And more recently, she started a company called Luxme. That's L-X-M-I. This is a luxury skincare brand that sources really rare ingredients from same earlier said poor countries, thereby lifting women out of poverty in those countries. And it's also, there's some really amazing resources that those countries have actually in the ground that we don't have access to. And in this case, she, <laughs> as if she didn't have enough in her plate, having started two companies focused on social good, social entrepreneurship. She's also the author of a forthcoming book called Give Work. The thesis of which is that giving work is the most powerful solution for ending global poverty. Instead of giving stuff and handouts, how can we give work? It's a beautiful book. I'm on the short list to get one as soon as it comes out. I can't wait. Um, but before then, you're going to actually hear a preview of it from Lila herself. I know so many of you guys, like myself, are passionate about social impact. Obviously, this is the key reason I wanted her on the show. Social entrepreneurship, it's kind of a little bit of a buzzword and maybe dangerously buzzy. But what I love is that she brings that shit down to earth. She gives us the 1000% real deal, the insight into what you can and should know about the ideas of starting in service of these these points of view. Uh, you also find out from our conversation that that the way that she thinks about this is light years beyond just this sort of first order logic. She will help you think about starting a business in, in social entrepreneurship, the ups, the downs. And I think you'll just get a lot of depth from her that you haven't heard elsewhere. These problems are not simple and nor are the, the solutions to the problems that she's trying to solve. But she's very clear in asserting that, that these problems will be solved by brilliant people like you listeners and her in applying some of these rigorous thinkings that other folks that are just looking, scratching the surface, trying to use the buzzwords haven't. It's a very nuanced show and you'll love Lila's level of sophistication, super inspiring stuff, but beyond that, full of a, a bunch of tactical and insightful stuff that you'll want to apply to your own business. And that's the cool thing about this, is if you are a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, and you have a business going, there are things you can do right now to not just make the world a better place, but to make your business better at the same time by employing some of these things that she talks about. A couple highlights here. What else we got? She tells a story about how Samosaurus came to be, which I, I love because she was so scrappy, so scrappy. You don't need huge funding. You don't need a massive bank account to get the stuff off the ground. I love her kickoff story. It was literally sending 
Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, founder and chairman of LinkedIn, a message on LinkedIn, which he replied to. That is badass. So if you want to hear how to get into uh, in touch with some influencers to help your venture get off the ground, uh, we also talk about why it's really limiting, and I don't say ultimately a sort of a non-solution to operate from the idea that handouts are the answer to poverty. This is, a, I think, a critical thing. I'm, I think I do a pretty good job of giving back. I, I try and allocate some money at the beginning of every year and pick some charities to work with. And, you know, I got my standard go-tos. She helped me change my thinking about that. And so if, you, if you're wondering how to give actively in the most helpful way, I know you're going to want to hear her perspective. And then, of course, the power of surrounding yourself with the right people. She does a really helpful, um, it's just a little, exercise is the wrong word. She just helped me help something in there click. I've always been a person who's advocating, you know, that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. But she puts a nice little twist on it about working around the people who achieve some things similar to those that you want to achieve, not just as an inspiration, but as an actual template. So I'm going to go on, but I feel like I'm, I'm now into spoiling the show. So I'm going to shut up. Let's get into the show. And before we do, just a quick word from the sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Life classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Every time I see you, this has been a long time coming. I know. I've wanted to have you on the show for literally like years, and we just bumped into each other. And you said, "Oh my God, I would love to do that. It'd be fun." And I said, yes. "I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna take. The, I'm gonna text you. I'm gonna. We're gonna make it happen." And here we are. And we did. And I'm so honored to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not worthy of that introduction, though. No, thank you, you. <laughs> crushed so hard. I love. I'm, I am glad that we're together in San Francisco. And B, holy smokes, big article in the New York Times yesterday. Was it yesterday or the day before? Sunday. It was Sunday? in the Sunday Times. Sunday yeah. Times, and today is Wednesday, so three days ago. My time flies. Congratulations. Thanks. God. Thanks. But you know, the PR is only the like the that's nice right. veneer on that's the, the real veneer, story. That's the veneer, right? It is. That's <laughs> the veneer. And that's yeah. what this show, you guys know that, that's what this show is all about. Uh, so we're going to get into it. Uh, maybe, okay, I just gave a little bit of a history. I know you mostly through Samasaurus. Mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss introduced us. You were on Creative Live 
with his show, uh, this four-hour life show, which is a yeah. great class. And that was before we recruited him to come to Africa. He actually <laughs> saw our work in action in Kenya years ago. He's one of my clients with Zamasaurus. Amazing. Fun Tim Ferriss story. Oh, there's so much to talk about. We should get into it. So um, one of the things I mentioned to this before we started recording that I love is for people who there's contrast in their life. You started out going one path, and as my friend Katerina Fake, the founder of Flickr and advisor to Creative Live and, and Pal said, it's never too late to change directions. And from management consulting to founding a, uh, a what do you call it, a, just a, a nonprofit business yeah. that gets people that are in low-income countries or poor countries paid? Mm -hmm. Is that how you do Give yeah. me your, your words in a very elegant way. Sure. What, um, how do you describe Source? And it's, it's, it's poor people in, in poor countries and poor people in the U.S. So we, oh, it is in um, the U.S. too? Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. didn't know that. We have oh, a program amazing. called Sama School that operates in low-income communities around the country because we think you know, poverty is an international problem, it's a domestic problem, mm -hmm. and the issues are really similar. Incredible. So yeah, so we so we're called Sama Source because Sama means equal in Sanskrit, and I had worked for different nonprofits when I was in college, and this all started because when I was in high school, I got a scholarship from of all places a tobacco company, literally big tobacco. Wow. Funded my travel to Africa, and I got the scholarship, and I was like, I want to do something different. I was I was feeling like I wanted an adventure, and I found a volunteer program to go and volunteer in Africa, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go and, and do that, and I'll use this money. And frankly, like I wasn't hell bent on saving the world. I, I really just wanted to have an adventure and get out of Dodge. So yeah. I did that. I did that in what would have been my second semester, Where was Southern Dodge? California. Southern California. Dodge. I mean, it's a pretty great place to be. Yeah. So <laughs> right. I was so lucky. I got the scholarship, and I had a great. Uh, I went to a really cool math and science magnet school, and I had really supportive teachers. And they were like, "Okay, well, you can graduate early. You have enough credit. So just go be off on your merry way. Go do something, you know, good for the world." Wow. And so I went to Ghana in West Africa, of all places. I had no connection there. My parents thought I was a little bit crazy, but but I'm grateful they let me go. And I showed up there and I was a volunteer English teacher to about 60 kids who were um, blind and partially sighted in a school in you know the middle of rural West Africa. Wow. I had no idea what I was doing. I basically like plagiarized all the lesson plans from my high school English teacher. <laughs> and uh, she's luckily like, she's really good. You got this, Lyle, you got this. Exactly. And, uh, and I, started, I started like a creative writing program in the school and I, and I showed up there thinking I would like help all of these poor starving African kids and I got there and my students were so bright. I mean they could like name US senators. They were very up to speed on global politics. They all listened to BBC and Voice of America radio. And the idea that like a kid living on less than $2 a day in a poor country could know more about the world than some of my high school peers just blew my mind. Yeah. And I realized that I had absorbed this myth about poverty, that we live in a meritocracy, that yeah. if you only are willing to work hard enough, you will escape poverty, and that's just not true. It's, oh. And it's heartbreaking. It I mean, is. That's what I just felt my heart break when you said that. It was sort of like, God, it's just such a reminder. Yeah, it's heartbreaking and it's unacceptable. Yeah, it's 2017. Think, yeah. There is enough wealth in the world to solve this problem. No one should be living in that kind of de de uh, desperation. And so, I saw my kids. You know, the people in this school who would 
have conditions like malaria and not be able to afford a $5 medication to fix their, you know, malaria fever. I, there was a kid who died in our village of a preventable disease because his mom didn't have the money. And, you know, in Ghana, there wasn't enough money for public health care. So if you have, you know, traumatic in injury and you go to the hospital and they don't have enough, you know, enough material for sutures that day, you will die in the hospital. And these just constantly, you know, seeing these avoidable tragedies made me aware that poverty is a problem that we absolutely have to fix. I think it is the biggest moral problem in our lifetimes. And it's the root cause of so many problems we try to fix downstream, whether it's getting access, um, getting people access to clean water, yep. sanitation, you know, healthcare, all of these things are basically caused by poverty. So if you figure out a way to help people increase their incomes, they solve all of those problems on their own. And I learned in Ghana that I think the biggest challenge in a lot of these low-income communities is job creation. So I started thinking, how can I create jobs in a place like you know, my village that yeah. I was living in in Ghana? And I went and I studied international development at Harvard. I tried to understand why these people and places were so poor. And I kept coming across this very traditional charity model of, okay, well, our way to solve the problem is let's build a well for these poor people. Let's build a school. Let's send their government a lot of money and hope that the government invests it in the right things. We've invested, like, close to a trillion dollars in aid in Africa um, in the last 60 years and still incomes for the for the poorest people have remained virtually the same they've they've not wow. you know crossed a dollar a day and why is that something wow. in this model is not working and so i had that kind of in the background and then i graduated from college and my parents didn't have much money and i needed to have a job so your, i took a consulting gig your parents were first generation yeah right? i was uh, i'm i'm first generation my parents or came sorry, from india yeah. Yeah, yeah in in the late 70s Incredible. and you know my brother and i basically lived the american dream my parents came to the country with two suitcases and we through public schools made it into harvard and stanford and we were just like blessed in every way by this country's opportunities. And so maybe because of that, it broke my heart to see kids who were equally talented not get the same chances. Yeah. And as I studied this problem of poverty more and more, I just realized that our approach to solving it is dead wrong. We are so focused on basically giving handouts in some way. Uh -huh. And handouts might make us feel good as the donor, but they <laughs> don't solve the core problem. Yeah. You know, it's like teach a man to fish. It's the oldest yes. adage, and, and yet we don't do that. So anyway, I took this consulting job right after college because I needed to make some money, and I also wanted to understand how business worked. I had no idea. I mean, I had worked in like nonprofits, and I studied, you know, African economic development. So I had no idea how business worked, and I got this like two-year crash, co crash course yeah. in how to run a business and how to manage a P&L and all the things you learn as a consultant working for big companies. And then as soon as I could, I quit. And I started Get this money business. in the bank. I yeah. love that. That's like a great, <laughs> it's a great way to use the system, the traditional system mm -hmm. that we're all pressured by to create leverage or a catapult for you to go and do something you love. You knew, you, you knew when you went in that this is the goal. I need to go make some money and create some leverage and then I'm going to get out. I knew that I wanted to address the problem of poverty. <clears throat> I had no idea how. I knew also that like the traditional nonprofit model didn't seem like it was working. Mm -hmm. It felt fundamentally disempowering to give handouts to people who actually wanted work. Yeah. And what was I it, saw mm -hmm. was it uh, uh, was it on both sides the people that were receiving the handouts, I mean, I'm sure they were grateful to receive the handout, but there was some tainted aspect to it and on our side too was it a two-sided problem. 
Definitely a two-sided yeah. problem. Like I, um, I remember in Ghana when I came back, I got all of these letters in the mail, these little blue aerograms written by the friends and family members of my students because they'd all ask for my address. And so they'd get their friends to write me these letters that would be like, Dear Sister Lila, God bless you. Can you please send me a box of crayons? Um, can you please send me, I got an ask for a box of water once. And I'm like, somebody took the trouble to go and write me a letter, to go buy an aerogram, get a pencil, write a long letter, mail it to the United States for a box of water? Like how messed up is the situation? Yes. They've been trained to think that the only way that they can get these things is by begging for them because there's no economic opportunity. And how heartbreaking is that? Like someone is industrious enough to go and write me a long letter, which frankly like my parents weren't even doing when I was in Ghana. Right, right. And so it just seemed like such a broken system. And I felt like the spirit and the like, the incredible energy that all of these young people had in, in Ghana was being wasted because they, they had no chance to use that to produce income for themselves. Incredible. And, um, and I also felt like if those kids had been lucky enough to have the experience I'd had and go to good public schools in Southern California, they would be lawyers and doctors and they would have like kicked my butt on the SAT. And it just was an accident of birth that put them there and me, you know, in the U.S. Yeah. So yeah. You cracked the nut, though. You figured out a different way of looking at it. And that was one of the things that I was intrigued by when we first met because it was so different than, from all of the other charity work that I had experienced. And, you know, the traditional ways that you talked about in your long list earlier about, you know, give, give people this, send over food, dig a well. And I think you're right. They do make us feel better. But your approach was radically different. How'd you start? Because you said you didn't know how to start. And I think this is one of the reasons I want to ask this question is because there's so many people at home who have an idea or, you know, burning with the same passion that you were burning with in poverty in, you know, your village in Ghana and beyond, and yet are paralyzed by not knowing what to do. So mm -hmm. walk us through that. Sure. Well, social entrepreneurship is interesting because you're solving, you have to be able to solve two sets of problems. One is a set of problems that are experienced by the people you want to help. Mm -hmm. And the second is a set of problems that uh, a business that those people can be involved in can solve, if that makes sense. Yep. So it's like two layers of problems, right? Okay. And so I knew that the problem I wanted to solve um, for people like the ones I'd met in Ghana was poverty. And the way to solve that would be to create employment for them. But I didn't know what kind of employment I could create that would solve a real market need. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, so I looked at models like microfinance. Um, Muhammad Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize in 2006, yep. um, won it because he figured out that if we could take banking, which has been traditionally very exclusive, poor people don't get access to bank loans because they don't have credit history and banks don't want to lend tiny amounts to people who repay them on a weekly basis, right? So they were totally cut out and he realized if, if he could loan, you know, $200 to a woman in Bangladesh to start a small, you know, tailoring business or selling you know, tomatoes or produce, she could repay that loan pretty reliably, um, much more than a traditional bank would ever expect. And so he started this whole new model of microcredit, which took over the world and served hundreds of millions of people and brought millions of people out of poverty, right? And I looked at microfinance and I thought, that's really interesting. But the challenge with microfinance is we give the, this loan to a, a small businesswoman in Bangladesh. Who is she selling stuff to? She's selling stuff to other poor people. So she's locked into a market where everyone else also makes only $2 a day. And so at best, she can sell a few more tomatoes to other poor people, right? There's a cap on how big her market is. Yeah. But if instead, you can connect poor people to a global market that's much bigger, 
where they can sell to people who are much wealthier, that's how you catapult them out of poverty. So I thought to myself, what is something that I can train someone from a poor place to do that can actually make them more than $2 a day or $3 a day? What if I could make them $10 a day? $10 a day in a place like Kenya where we started is middle class. That means you can afford three meals a day, good education, health care, clothing, all of the basics. You can pay for your own water and sanitation. Wow. So 10 bucks a day, what can you do that makes 10 bucks a day? And I started looking into this more. And at the time when I was management consulting, my first client was an outsourcing from a call center. And I was sent off to India to go help this call center go public. And I was really depressed because I thought call centers were bad. I was like, oh, God, they're taking jobs away from middle America and, and reducing economic opportunity. But as I dug deeper, I realized that this model at a larger level could be really powerful because digital work can go to places where the markets are really Bingo. small, right? Yeah. Like the woman in Bangladesh, through a computer, can sell her services to someone in the US. She's not limited anymore. She's not constrained to that local market. Yeah. And so it was eye-opening. I thought, well, what if we could train people in these low-income communities to do digital work for companies all over? And by the way, it wouldn't just work in rural Kenya. It could work in rural America, in like rural Arkansas, where we actually have a program now. And so that was the aha moment I had. And, uh, and then over nights and weekends, over a span of two years, I read everything I could about social entrepreneurship. I read every book that Muhammad Yunus had written. I read everything I could about starting a business. I wrote this like really shitty business plan on nights and weekends. <laughs> Pardon my language. <laughs> oh, no, take it there. Go, girl. <laughs> and I found, actually, I started um, submitting my business plan to competitions I found online. I had to hustle to even make money in college. Like I had three jobs and I had scholarships and I, my parents never had any money. So I was used to hustling and like figuring out ways that people would pay me to do stuff. The five so, to nine. Exactly, yeah. the five to nine. And so that's why I support the idea of a side hustle because I did it for two years when I was consulting. And then finally, lo and behold, this business plan competition took my business plan and said, okay, we're going to advance you to the semifinals. We're going to fly you to Amsterdam and you can present your business and if you place in this award ceremony, you can get up to 30,000 euros for your business, which is like such a tiny amount of money, but it was enough to get me started. Incredible. So I won second place and with that 22,000 euros, I quit my job and started Samasource. And the model was I would go and find technology companies that had work that we could do, things like data entry, like you know, entering business cards into a database mm -hmm. or transcribing audio files. We actually did that for Tim Ferriss when he was writing one of his books. Amazing. So he'd record these audio files and he needed somebody to transcribe them. And, and then on the back end, I would train people in a community in Kenya from, from a slum um, in, to do this basic digital work. And you personally went there and trained them? Or you so and a small team of people? I went there and I found an entrepreneur in Kenya who was running an internet cafe business and failing. He couldn't make enough money to generate you know, the returns to pay mm -hmm. for his internet cafe business. So I'm like, you have the computers. <coughs> you have access to local talent, can you train people to do this data entry work? And he's like, no problem. And Kenya has a large population of people just like my students in Ghana who can read and write, who are bright and motivated, but are living on less than $2 a day in the most abhorrent conditions because they simply were you know, born in a place where there's little economic opportunity. So 
Steve Muthay, sadly he passed away a few years ago, but Steve Muthay was my first business partner and he was this Kenyan entrepreneur running this internet cafe, so he was recruiting kids from the slums, not kids, but like 19 year olds, sure. to come and do the work. And, and kids um, when you're our age. Kids when you're our age, exactly, <laughs> the ripe old age yes. of 34. And, uh, and I was doing all the quality assurance myself, so like I was using Basecamp, this like software. Oh, yeah. And so they would like log into Basecamp and I'd send them these files. I found one guy to be my client in the Bay Area um, he runs this company called Benetech and they had this library for blind readers called Bookshare and he needed transcription. So I got a $30,000 contract from him and I basically told him, look, I will personally do the transcription myself if like these Kenyans can't get it right. And of course the Kenyans blew it out of the water. They were like amazing. They had the best quality and I would just do the QA and then I would send it to the client and that's how we got started. And now nine years later, we have moved over 8,000 workers and their families, so a total of over 35,000 people out of poverty. So from an average of under $2 a day to an average of over $10 a day. And what's amazing is that they stay at that level. They stay out of poverty after working with us because all of a sudden they get exposed to the digital economy and the office job, you know, the formal skills. sector. Skills. Yeah. And so they never go back to where they were before. And it's really amazing to see how people are using this income. They're sending their kids to school. I mean, we have these incredible stories of people like saying their entire lives change. They move out of the slum, they eat better food. I mean, literally everything changes when you increase your income, you know, 400%. Wow. Well, you cracked a particular nut, but I'm also interested in the trend that you were a part of and have been a prime mover in. As you said earlier, just the social entrepreneur movement. Talk to us about that at the macro level. I love the detail. You're transcribing and you're helping um, you know, low-income folks in these low-income areas get out. Talk about the, the, I think there's a lot of people who want to do good in the mm -hmm. world. They want to put, you know, Creative Live is a company that's a for-profit company, but we have 10 million students all over the world. We don't get the kinds of stories of going from zero or a dollar or two dollars a day, but total life transformation from you know, forexing their income. But I'm really curious, you've done it in a very different way. You've cracked a hard problem. Talk to me about the trend. Is it, is it fluff? Is it real? And I mean, how would someone, how would you suggest someone who's interested in that think about it? Yeah. Well, I think it's so real because I see the data. Mm -hmm. um, Cone Communications released a study a couple of years ago that showed that nine out of 10 millennials are willing to switch brands to one associated with a good cause. And increasingly, these younger consumers are becoming savvy about which causes are fluff and which are real. Yeah, and also which are well run. Totally. Yeah. And what you see, I remember being friends with Neil Blumenthal, who's one of the co-founders of Warby Parker. Before he started Warby Parker, he was the CEO of a nonprofit called Vision Spring, which was a really innovative nonprofit that was um, helping people get access to eyeglasses, not by handouts, not by giving them eyeglasses, but by training local entrepreneurs to sell eyeglass kits and teach them how to repair broken eyeglasses. Wow. And so it was, a, it was a give work kind of model, mm -hmm. an employment model that also solved the problem of, of glasses. And then he went on to start Warby Parker, which is now the single biggest donor to Vision Spring. And it's an amazing model. They're a B corporation. They're yep. upstanding in so many ways. And um, millennials love brand 
brands like Warby Parker because it's not fluff. It's not like they're just writing a check to some nonprofit that's not affiliated. It's like core to their business to yeah. provide sight for as many people as possible. And people love the idea that they're voting with their dollars, especially, I think, when you feel disempowered politically. People realize that maybe they can make the change they want to see in the world outside of politics in the way that they purchase and consume and for the companies that they work for. That's such a, such a powerful lever that most people don't realize that they, they have that in their, at their disposal. Totally. Yeah. And we don't even think about like, like, so our mission at Sama is to change the way that corporations spend their money. Imagine if the corporate budgets that go into like catering and even like employee swag and all the stuff that companies buy, yeah. imagine if they purchased from social enterprises, right? Imagine if they purchased from vendors that address poverty. Like there are organizations in this country that are hiring people from reentry populations, people just leaving prison to make jeans you know, to make sweatshirts. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that if you're in, in charge of procurement at a company and you have to buy corporate swag for your employees? Why wouldn't you choose to buy from the nonprofit that's employing, you know, people who are down on their luck, yeah. right? So I feel like this is a huge movement and we're just starting to see that these two worlds that we thought were so different, the world of social impact and all this nonprofit stuff and the world of profit maximizing business, we're starting to see all of these links between the two. Yeah. And realizing that we can't just like push social impact to nights and weekends and to nonprofits. We have to embed it in the way that we run our companies. So powerful. I love, and I feel like you also touched on something in there, which is that we're at the front end of this. Like even the concept, the phrase is, a, a, you know, social entrepreneurship is a, it's like what? Five years old, ten years old, totally new. Ten yeah. years old. Yeah, you've been doing this for <laughs> yeah. nine years. Did Maybe you have a name years. for it when you started it? Was it called? No, that? no. I, I think it was called like Muhammad Yunus was calling it social business, but I mean like very early days. Yeah, yeah. And you know that it's a huge, it's a movement, and to be so early on, where do you see Sama Source going from from here? Is it just going to continue to to grow? And I well, I, I know at least one thing you brought back to rural Arkansas, you mm -hmm. said, so give us a, what's the thousand foot view? Sure. Well, right now in this country, it blows my mind that if you just look at how, how government is spending its money, government is a big purchaser of goods and services. Why aren't there requirements that city governments purchase from social enterprises? Like, yeah. right? Like we have a huge, we have a huge problem with prisons in this country. We incarcerate way too many people for nonviolent drug offenses. Once you get incarcerated, it becomes incredibly difficult to be a productive member of society and Lots contribute to the economy. Yep. Lots of data. And I think there should be incentives for companies that are willing to hire people who are coming out of prison for nonviolent drug offenders because you're preventing that person from being on welfare. You're preventing that person from being a burden to the taxpayer. You're getting that person into a productive job, right? Yeah. We don't do any of that now. It's, it's shocking to me. Like, we don't incentivize the kind of society we want to create. So I think there is, for Sama, such a huge opportunity to show the world that the model that we use to build Sama Source can be used in other industries. And so I, I'm writing a book that, well, I just finished writing it. It's coming out in September. So cool. <laughs> I can't wait. I, make sure that I get an advanced copy. Pretty Definitely. Please. Oh, I love it. Definitely. Your name is on it. It's, um, it's called Give Work. And, um, and the idea behind Give Work is what if we could shift 1% of the budget that companies spend on goods and services, their procurement budget, to sourcing from social enterprises that give work to low-income people. And it doesn't have to be people in Africa. It could be people right here. 
I met with the CEO of Levi's recently, and Levi's is now sourcing a percentage of their denim from a nonprofit factory in Texas that employs military veterans and uh, people who are low income to make jeans. Like, why wouldn't you pay 10 bucks more for that pair of jeans that is helping someone who served your country? And so I think that this is going to become a movement, a give work movement, and we want to build a pledge system where companies can pledge to at least spend, you know, one percent yeah, like of their procurement budget. Like one percent for the planet. Exactly. Or a, I love exactly one percent to give work, and it can be local and it can be international. And by doing that, those companies are actively solving the problems that would otherwise be outsourced to philanthropy. And instead of just like cutting a check, a percentage of profits and donating it, why not embed that social impact in the way that you're working every day? And I talked to so many CEOs who were like, this is easy. Like, I'm already spending the money. I might as well spend it on a vendor that's doing good. So I think that's the vision. That's the future. Wow. So, there's so many things I want to talk about. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting pins in these things. This is my job, not yours. So I'm whinging here. I'm, I want to talk about like five different things, but I want to go back before I go to um, how companies can get affected or be more effective and um, some of the ways that we can support your, your book and further your vision. I want to go back to the decision of how you figured out what to do, like business plan competition. Did you, did you analyze? You said you read everything you could. And again, I'm going back to the mind and the hearts and the souls of the people who are listening and watching. <laughs> there are so many people who are in your, in your shoes what it, can you give them some sort of categorical advice on how to get started? Totally. Okay. So, you know, the brain learns through pattern recognition, right? That's mm -hmm. how kids learn. It's actually how machines learn yep. <laughs> as well. And so one of the most important things, I think, is to surround yourself with examples of what you want to do. And the best way to learn is to find people who are doing similar things and follow them follow them on social media. Now, because of like Instagram and Facebook and all of these tools we have to follow people's daily lives, yes. you can learn so much more from example than you could before. And when I was starting Salma, I mean, it's hard to believe, but like that was like right when Twitter was getting started. So we didn't have a lot of these examples in real time and you couldn't follow someone's journey the same way you can now. So I read a lot of biographies. I read yeah. Muhammad Yunus's books. I read biographies of a lot of women who inspired me. There is such a lack, sadly, of stories about women entrepreneurs, but yes. I tried to find the ones I could. And, um, and then I, I looked at their behaviors, and I was like, how can I model myself after this person or that person? I tried to meet as many inspiring leaders and CEOs as I could. I remember I once met Howard Schultz, and I picked his brain, and he sent me like four of his recommended books and I poured through them and I like flagged every page and highlighted them and so it really was like a learning exercise for me and you know I got tons of stuff wrong so I think the other thing is just to realize that you're bound to make mistakes and nothing's going to be perfect as you're you know as you're building something. Yeah it's the, the concept that it's linear I think that's what people think I have to go here 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 it just and also the the thinking and the planning gets in the way of the doing mm -hmm. and what I heard from you is I injected yourself into communities. You created it where there wasn't one. You modeled behavior after the people that you you saw doing the things that you liked. You were ravenous with respect to material that you could gain, you know, get on the on the topic. And all of those things are actions. It's it's a lot less cerebral and a lot more like physical. Sure, mm -hmm. you're reading books, but there's the, actually the sitting down and making time and the reading. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like. Do you see that? Is that a, I, I'm. I've seen you speak, and I've always seen long lines of people wanting to talk to you when you get off stage. <laughs> is that some of the is that some of the question questions that they they ask? 
when they when you when you get off stage? Yeah, like how do you how do you do it? How do you start? Like how did you get connected to the people you got connected to? And you know, I think one of the things that I learned is that you'd be surprised how many people will respond if you directly message them. And even if it's one out of every hundred people, yeah. that one person might be, in my case it was Reed Hoffman. I actually sent Reed Hoffman a cold like in mail on on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. By the way, if you don't know Reed, he's the founder of LinkedIn, <laughs> billionaire, uh, Greylock, Greylock's an investor here in Creative Lives, amazing human. Tech mogul, amazing yeah, mogul. human. I mean, oh, yeah, was it PayPal? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He was part of the early PayPal mafia, yeah. and then at, he was on the board of Kiva, which is a peer-to-peer -peer microfinance platform mm -hmm. that I really respect, and I had followed his journey there, and I just always felt like he was a kindred spirit, and so I literally sent him an in-mail. And I was like, you know, Reed, I saw that you just made this huge donation to Kiva. Like, would you donate to Sama Source? Here's what I'm doing. And he basically was like, okay, I'm not going to write you a check, but I'll take a meeting with you. And lo and behold, like a billionaire said yes to an ask that I had. And I, at that point, Sama was tiny. We had no cachet. I was not speaking everywhere. That was just like hustle, you know? And, and I, and I think that a lot of the time we like block ourselves from doing that sort of thing because yeah. we're embarrassed or we think Reed Hoffman's never going to want to hear from me. But like the Reed Hoffmans of the world want to hear about good ideas. Yeah. You know, and like when I get approached by someone with a great idea, maybe I can't respond to every email, but once in a while I'll be like, yeah, I'll meet with you. I'll spend 15 minutes, you mm -hmm. know, show a lot of successful entrepreneurs do things like Facebook Live or they have Twitter accounts and you can direct message them or tweet at them. I mean, yeah. there are so many ways to get in touch with leaders who inspire you. And for me, that was the most powerful way to learn how to create a business and get started. Incredible. I, I just love the start. There's, you know, I, we categorize people, people who have already identified as creative or entrepreneur, the people who want to. And in this people who want to category, there's like, like you said, they're their own worst blocker. Yeah, because it's the the paralysis of having to get it right and having to know all the things, and no one who starts knows all of the things. You know, you you, you, you can't. Out. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> all the things are it's not knowable. Uh, um, Tell me a little bit about the U.S. stuff. I didn't know that you had a program here in the U.S. Yeah, we launched. Um, actually, it's a funny story how it started. I told Tim this story. Um, we had these ads running on Hulu in 2009 that were using footage from a refugee camp. And it's a tragic story. There's a refugee camp called Dadaab in Kenya that has had at its peak like 900,000 Somali refugees caught in like no man's land. And we'd done a program there, and the refugees were able to work for Microsoft from the camp. Mind-blowing. And um, so I made a little video about it with like, you know, really bad footage and it was running on Hulu and this guy wrote me this email that was like, you are ruining America. You are stealing our jobs and sending them to Africans. And I was so heartbroken from this email because some is a nonprofit, so like I couldn't, I can't sell it. I have no equity and I'm not making money off of this. Like I'm yeah. doing it because I want to help solve this horrific refugee and, you know, poverty problem. And I immediately dashed off this like nasty response to the guy and then I didn't send it. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received is to never send an angry email to sleep on it. So smart. I slept on it, and the next morning I was like, you know, let me take a different tack. And so I wrote back and I was like, dear Joe, you know, I understand why you might be frustrated. It was just the recession had just started. It was 2009. As like we're losing a lot of jobs in America. Do you have any ideas for us on how we could do something in the U.S.? Maybe there's some way. 
and he wrote back the nicest response. He was like, thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry I was harsh. Like, I just lost my job and I live in Ohio and we've lost tons of manufacturing because, you know, companies are just looking for a quick buck. And it was this incredibly emotionally thoughtful response. Wow. And not normal. And this, this was not on YouTube. This was not on YouTube. <laughs> but this is a lesson to me yeah, that, like, sometimes so when people are angry, you just need to listen to them. Oh, it's the best advice. And I think even, you know, politically, we are in such a divisive place precisely because we're not listening to the other side and we're not being empathetic. So anyway, that inspired us years later to start a U.S. program. And we started in rural Arkansas because we had some connections to the Arkansas Economic Development Council that was really keen to bring jobs to this really low-income part of the country, the Mississippi River Delta, which is historically one of the poorest places yeah. in America. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. People still make their living doing seasonal cotton picking. There are major educational gaps there. And so we decided to start a pilot in the middle of the Delta and the idea was that we would train people to learn how to be successful on new online platforms for work, like Upwork mm -hmm. is a good example. So now you can make money from your own home. Even if you live in a trailer in the middle of the Mississippi River Delta, you can make money doing things like data entry or virtual assistance you know, for a company in Los Angeles or New York. And you have a competitive advantage if you live in a place where the cost of living is, you know, a tenth of what it is in San Francisco. So that was the premise, and we started it um, in 2012, and it's called Sama School. We've now trained over 30,000 people around the world, wow. um, including in the U.S., in digital work skills that they can apply, you know, working from home. So these are like digital freelancing skills. So we have a social media marketing class. We have a lot of people who are now making money running social media for businesses remotely. Uh -huh. um, we train them in things like community management. This is another growing field. Lots of companies are looking to hire people to like go and respond to Facebook comments on yeah. their brand or like figure out what people are saying about their brand. And, uh, and there are all these new ways to make money through the internet. And sadly, none of the federally sponsored job training programs are focused on that. Like the government's like 10 years behind job training. Wow. So we're the first job training program that's teaching people to leverage the digital economy. So let's get tactical for a second. What if the folks on the other end of this broadcast or recording or visual editors in many ways to consume this, mm -hmm. uh, what's the, how would you prescribe them get involved in what you're doing? Sure. Well, they can take the Sama School classes. They're okay. free, um, and they're really designed to help you get a leg in the digital economy immediately. Okay. Um, and the other thing you can do, probably for your audience, is think about this kind of a model. You know, maybe you and your community can train people to do community management from your hometown. You can build a social media marketing agency. Now I think it's actually one of the fastest growing sectors. Like yeah. every consumer brand needs community management people. Yeah. And it's one of the things that builds the most brand equity. And it's, it's hard, you know, to, when you're getting started to afford a full-time resource. So if you can build a small agency, like you can make tons of money doing that as a freelancer. Yeah, it is a big area of growth for a lot of small and medium agencies to do that. Mm -hmm. And solopreneurs, people that I, I know, some ha handful of people that do that for half a dozen companies. And if you piece together, it makes a pretty, pretty su substantial Absolutely. amount of money doing something like that. And yeah. you can work from anywhere. And mm -hmm. you can also learn a lot of the tools around community management online. Yeah. So you can teach yourself how to do it, run your business, you know, get paid all virtually. And you can live in a beautiful place in the Mississippi River Delta that costs, you know, like 10 grand a year instead of yeah. 100 grand a year. There was an <laughs> article in, uh, gosh, where was it recently? A Twitter engineer getting paid 
160k was whinging yeah. about the uh, the absurd prices in San Francisco. It's crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. I frankly like I don't I don't know why people build. We try to build our teams remotely as much as possible. Yeah. I'm like actually looking at maybe switching my home base to Florida. Um, this just makes so much more economic sense, and I just feel like we're paying a premium right now for the cost of living in the Bay. Yeah. But this is the beauty of the internet. It like, is. No longer are we constrained by where we happen to live. We can work for anyone from anywhere if we understand how to use that. Yeah, I think that's another great takeaway that the embedded in the Samosaur story is this opportunity. It's the you know the first time in the history of the world where we can transcend not only economic boundaries, but you know, geographic, social, cultural, <laughs> with, with the internet. I'm, I'm done such an amazing <laughs> job. I love it. We're just at the beginning. I feel like we're like, Mark Zuckerberg always has this great quote, like we're 1% of the way there. I feel like we're like one-tenth of 1% 1 of the way there. You and know, that equals so nine years. <laughs> nine, oh, tell me the story that you were sharing with me just a second ago. I, I love that about you're nine years into Samosaurus. Yeah. And you feel like you're just getting started, but you also feel like you've been doing it for a while. God, a long time. Since I was 25. Hard to imagine. But you also, what was the story you just shared about, uh, you, were, you were sort of ho-humming about grinding for nine years or something, and you're yeah. profitable now, and the, the, you've got Samosaurus headed in the direction you wanted to. And wasn't there someone that was saying, oh, girl, you're just getting started. Yes. Well, who's that? What was that? It was such a good story. So we became profitable last year. After nine years, we, we finally crossed 10 million in sales, and we, we now have 1,200 full-time agents who work for us, and, and it's the model's working. And uh, it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get there. And you so look was, great, by the way, oh, for all thank the you. blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> you look great. Thank you. It's, it's makeup. Um, <laughs> but I, I was meeting with the CEO of TomTom, Tom, a guy named Harold, who's based in Amazon. Amsterdam and TomTom Tom we know from like the the GPS you know navigation mapping, devices yeah. but they actually now their big business is mapping data okay. so they sell mapping data to the like I think to like the Googles and the Ubers of the world mm -hmm. and so they're big public company beautiful fancy offices and I was telling him this story and I was like you know it took us nine years to be profitable not like TomTom Tom. I mean you guys were such a, an early success and he looked at me and he's like are you kidding he's like for 11 years we never crossed two and a half million in sales 11 years, he and his wife started the business. And he said, we were just grinding away. We we're trying all these different things. None of them were working. And then finally, we came up with the idea of building a GPS navigation device. And we did that. And finally, after 11 years of being you know, two to three million in sales, we hit 40 million. And then the year after that, it was like over 100 million. And he said, but it took me 11 years to get to this point. And if I had quit at any point along the way, I never would have taken this company public. That is the. I think it's a huge aspect of building anything, whether you're talking about a product or just as an entrepreneur, a business. There's grit is a thing that I talk about. Do you feel like that's what he's talking about? Absolutely. Grit and resilience. And I think the only thing that separates great entrepreneurs from failed entrepreneurs is an ability to not quit. It's not magic dust. It's, it's not, not raw talent. It's not, it's not raw talent. It's not magic dust. I mean, I, I, I think it does take a certain kind of talent to not quit. Yeah. I think you have to be so committed and and almost like a missionary for what you believe in. Um, but I, I really don't think it's, it's, I like to think, it's easy to think that, oh, that person was born with some special skill set or, you know, Steve Jobs is a creative, brilliant genius and he probably was. But, but so many entrepreneurs just got where they are because they stuck through the tough times. So true. Wise one, you <laughs> wise.
well, I don't know, talk to me in five years. Maybe when I'm like penniless and homeless in San Francisco, I'll feel differently. <laughs> but to that end, you started another business. <laughs> you told me this, I think when I saw you in New yeah. York. Was it maybe at Founders Forum or mm -hmm. something like that? Mm -hmm. You're like, I gotta tell you, I started another business. I was like, what? Like double CEO duty here? Yeah, because I like pain. <laughs> I don't know. I don't recommend it, but I. Um, but some is now much more mature, and I created a new business called Luxme, LXMI, LXMI.com, and we are aiming to be, as CNBC called us two weeks ago, the Chanel of social impact. Ooh. So I wanted. Did you, did you coin that and feed it to them, or was that theirs? I mentioned it, and then uh, they were like, "Oh!" And then they put that as the headline. So it was wow, it was awesome. Well played. Um, I don't know how Chanel feels about this. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> oh, and I was like, "Dagger." <laughs> but basically, you know, I I looked at the Sama Source model, this give work model, and there are all these interesting social enterprise models now that hire you know prisoners and low income people and you know women in developing countries who've been you know sex trafficked, I mean, all these marginalized populations. And there's nobody doing that in the luxury space. And if you think about how much money we spend on silly luxury goods, frankly, like I was spending, you know, I always splurged on one thing, which was skin cream. My mom always taught me, you know, you gotta make sure that you invest in your face. You only have one face. So, <laughs> so buy the most expensive skin cream you can afford. Nice. And a lot of my girlfriends, similarly, they might be broke, but they will spend $100 on a really nice jar of La Mer or a Chanel skin cream. And I started doing more digging and realizing that a lot of these very popular expensive skin creams are petroleum-based have ingredients like yellow number seven and red number five in them. Why would I want to put like a Skittle on my face? Um, that have toxic emulsifiers and all kinds of nasty stuff in them. And there's such an opportunity to me to build a product that's good for you, the consumer, and good for the world, but that's appealing to a luxury consumer with beautiful packaging, amazing branding. Like imagine if you had a product that looked as beautiful as a Chanel product, but that was actually good for you and good for the world. It's high time we had yeah, that, sign me up. <laughs> right? And we spend so much on luxury goods, and they're such high margin businesses usually that you can afford if you're sp if you're charging hundred dollars for skin cream, you can afford to bake into your economic model social good. You can afford to pay living wages to people in a developing country to produce the raw ingredient. You can afford to source from the fair trade factory. You can afford to make packaging that's more expensive but ethically produced. And so it's the kind of business model that supports social impact, I think, or should. And so that's the vision of Luxme. We started with skincare because we uh, have access to amazing raw ingredients from northern Uganda. So we source from women who are mostly war widows. There was a horrific civil war in northern Uganda that Invisible Children made a big documentary about yeah. it. Um, Good film. Killed you know, lots of young children as child soldiers. And this community is now struggling to recover from that war. And so the best thing we can do for them is not to give them handouts, it's to purchase things from them and pay them fair wages. And so we purchase a rare type of shea butter called Nilotica that's amazing for the skin. It's literally, I think it's the best thing you could possibly put on your skin. It's a superfood packed with vitamins A and E. And, um, and by purchasing this product, we, we sell it, uh, we call it raw, uh, pure Nilotica melt. We sell it raw at Sephora. We're the first social impact brand 
to sell at Sephora. You told me that before we and, started recording. Um, That's huge. There's 300 stores? 300 stores, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough business, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah. we launched in Sephora. We launched on QVC. We're about to launch with Ipsy this summer, and we sell it on our site. And I just think it's, it's amazing that now you can buy a product that really, the packaging looks super high-end and luxe. It looks beautiful on a, on a counter next to your favorite luxury product, but it's actually really good for the world. It's fair trade certified. It's organic certified. You could literally eat the product if you were in a pinch, and it would be great for you. <laughs> wow. So it was it just because you saw the high margin and you saw what you built at Samasaurus, you put those two things together? Or like, what was the, the impetus? Was it like, what was the moment? Was there a spark or was the spark a, yeah. was it a five-year spark? Five-year overnight success. What? I'd been thinking this for a while. Like I'd wanted to start like Sama Beauty. I was calling it, and I, I have. I'm like a. I have a real problem as an entrepreneur, which a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is I get excited by ideas. Yeah. I have like 80 domain names in my GoDaddy account. Kate, if you're <laughs> watching this, this is my wife. C. <laughs> C. <laughs> she's like, am I seriously renewing like 125 of these things again? Is this real life? Thank you for making me feel good about myself for a second, but now back to you. So it is, an, it is a problem though, right? It's you're a chasing, huge problem. Chasing a lot of shiny things. Chasing a lot of shiny things and like if you, like entrepreneurs are by nature, we are optimists because mm -hmm. we, we will something that didn't exist into existence, which means that you have to have like a, an unshakable kind of optimism, which means that you're probably optimistic about too many things, mm -hmm. right? And so, so I had these so, so many different Sama ideas. I wanted to make Sama the virgin of social enterprise, the virgin group of social enterprise, mm -hmm. right? And do Sama this and Sama that and Sama food and Sama beauty. I have all those domains. But I was thinking about this and then I was in Northern Uganda because we have a Sama source facility there that employs low-income women. And, uh, and I was walking around in a local market and I came across this Nilotica product and in a raw form in a little tub and I put it on and I was like wow this stuff is amazing and I started doing more research and realized that nobody had really created a luxury brand around it. It had been exported a little bit like you could find it on Amazon but no one I thought was doing justice to the powerful story of where this comes from which is the most pristine stunning region on earth that actually grows wild on trees on the banks of the Nile River where the Nile River originates in Uganda. I mean, you couldn't think of a more perfect story for a skincare ingredient than this like luscious region. Yeah, <laughs> and so the wheel started turning and, and then I approached my board with Samasaurus and I said, can we start a beauty line? And they were like, well, why don't you start that as a separate company and you have our blessing. And I donated a third of my personal equity to the nonprofit. So if Luxme ever, you know, does really, really well, the nonprofit will get a nice chunk of cash. It's basically a co-founder in the mm -hmm. business. And I set it up as a separate company. Wow, fascinating. So we'll see how it goes, but it's, it's really exciting. And I, I'm excited to take the give work model into a consumer brand. Yeah. Because I think we can generate so much more awareness of our mission that yeah, way. There's, there's, you have insights that you can share through the story of the new product mm -hmm. and not only inspire well, or emp empower, excite, create the movement for the consumer, but inspire other entrepreneurs too. I love the, it's sort of like there's a flywheel that you've started and with the core idea that the things that you've uncovered, I know that you're gonna keep spinning off more things. I gotta go, I gotta, I, I'm <laughs> so. telling you, I know, it's, it's like A, dangerous, but B, I gotta go back to a comment that you said, I'm curious as hell, QVC, that shit is just, that is, Crazy. I mean, it's a huge business. Yeah. I'm dying to know what it's like if you're on you're on QVC. You had the product yeah. on there. Yeah. 
And I just sold what it last it? week on air. You did? Yeah. Man. Was it amazing or weird or both? It's so surreal. Like any company that measures revenue by the minute is doing pretty well. Yeah. And so you... Yeah, there's we, a big um, red ticker like that yeah. clock right there, isn't it? It's just like... Yeah. And you have an earpiece and, and it's, um, it's amazing. So I, I'd seen the movie Joy. Yes. Last year. I like loved that movie. Yeah. And I was like, God, it's QVC would be so amazing. And like um, figured out through one of my board members that I had a connection. And so she put us in email touch and I managed to get a pitch meeting. And our CMO, who's really like my business partner in Luxme, um, she was like five months pregnant at the time. And she drove down from her house in New York and I flew in and uh, we decided that we would focus the pitch on the fact that our raw ingredient was safe enough to eat. And how many skincare ingredients that are really effective can you say that about? And so we decided we would make chocolates out of the raw ingredient and serve the chocolates at the meeting. So Thea, five months pregnant, was the night before whipping up some truffles in her kitchen with Nilotica. And we showed up to the meeting, we opened this little box, and we're like, oh, here, we brought you guys some chocolates. And as they're eating the chocolates, I was like, guess what? You are eating the product that I want to sell on air. And then I took it out and I ate it from the jar. And I was like, this is pure Nilotica melt. This is a single ingredient, certified organic, fair trade product that is better for you than all of these petroleum-based things that women are buying and spending $100 an ounce on. And this is the purest, best thing you can put on your skin, and it's also good for the world. I want to expose America to this product. And they were like, sold. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm buying. I don't even need my skin. is like, we, I need a lot of help here, but my God, yeah, incredible. But it's, it's just funny how those, like, and I think it's, you know, I, I actually... I looked at that movie Joy and I was like, how did she do it? And it's funny how those examples, those real world examples can inspire us. And so anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's still a very long and tough journey ahead. We are no means, by no means, like a hugely successful brand. We're just starting out. But just to have that opportunity to sell on air is, is amazing. I have, okay, incredible story. The, the article in the New York Times that came out on Sunday it talked a lot about, you, there's this undercurrent, I think you've done such a nice job of reminding the folks at home because uh, I just made a video a couple days ago about, it's so, you, you, if you're sitting at home in your underwear in Ohio watching this right now going like, oh my God, how am I gonna do it? And then you think you wanna be, you know, just like you or just like this other inspirational character online or X, Y, or Z. And what you have to do is be a little bit of you, a lot of you, and take little bits from these other things. But mm -hmm. what you have done, I think, is you've, you've created inspiration around your ideas, but you also, uh, it's been a real undercurrent in this, in this interview, and in the New York Times, which is I want you to talk about, is that it's hard. And that shit, you know, it doesn't look like, it, it's not a TV series, it's not a, it's not a two-week sprint and then you're famous, it's not, a, it's not an overnight success. So can you fill in, like, just give us the arc of the story of the New York Times and then talk to me, and we're really talking to the people who are listening <laughs> and watching, about, like, how, that's why you should chase something you care about is because shit's going to get hard, and when it does, you have to be there. Totally. And I think there's an inbuilt advantage to mission-driven companies, which is that at the end of the day, even if you fail, you're doing something that is worthwhile, that is aligned with your values. So it's like... Even if it doesn't make you money, you're still going to go to church. You're still going to go show up at the PTA meetings because yeah. you care about it, and you care about it for reasons other than financial gain. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately tides you through when the going gets rough because you feel like you're doing something that's noble and that has a purpose. And so 
I the mean, why. The, the why. why, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the Times piece was about, it was about resilience and getting through tough times. And I had, I, my parents had a, a really tough, you know, personal life. And there was a lot of chaos in my house growing up. And part of the reason I went to Africa was that I wanted to escape that. And um, it's interesting that now there are all these studies coming out about childhood adversity that show that adverse experiences can actually build resilience and grit and can make you stronger and can give you a superpower. They also might require you to have a lot of therapy and, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know, need to meditate and do other things to kind of, I think, balance you out because along with those gifts, you can inherit challenges and problems. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there's overwhelming evidence that we can turn really tough situations into opportunities and strengths. Um, Cheryl Sandberg has this new book yeah. that just came out called Option B um, about you know how life can throw you lemons and it's really about how you choose to act in those moments that demonstrate your character and and often we are you know there are so many things that can happen that are beyond our control that are really shitty that yeah. really suck yeah. and they happen all the time to entrepreneurs and so the Times piece was just about how I don't think I'm especially gifted at anything other than just you know going when it's when it gets really hard force of nature it's, again the stamina <laughs> piece um, embedded in that answer you 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 said things like whether you go to therapy or meditate or mm -hmm. you, I felt like there were some other things that you could say in that place you were telling a story or part of a narrative arc but let's go back and excerpt that for a second and how do you manage all mm -hmm. that stuff like is it all of those things is it more Talk to me about that, and, and again, the, yeah. the people at home want to know because it helps them <laughs> feel okay. About, yeah. you know, they, there's so much. Um, there's so much that happens in the world where people are comparing their actual life with the highlight reels, i.e., social media, mm -hmm. of others, and that comparison often creates a lot of anxiety and pain. Where the hope would be that it would inspire and cultivate. So I always ask my guests, like, talk to me about some shit that's hard mm -hmm. and how you overcome it through, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, are your, what are your medicines? So um, I'm happy to share this because I don't think we talk enough about it. And I think people view entrepreneurs as like, oh, this person is superhuman. They're able to just like do this and they have such a happy, glamorous life because they just see the highlight reel on mm -hmm. Facebook and no one posts the shitty moments on Facebook. Right. So when I was in college, my college roommate committed suicide. It was the same year that a family member took her own life. And it was the same year that I was working three jobs because my parents didn't have money. They'd gone through this really horrible divorce. My dad at one point was living in an RV. Like, it was not glamorous. And I struggled with depression for a lot of my 20s and some really low lows, like low enough that I didn't think I was going to make it. And I thankfully discovered two things that changed my life, therapy and meditation. And I will be vocal about it because I don't think enough people talk about it, mm -hmm. but I think that we absolutely have to build these sorts of tools more into everyday life. If you're trying to get better at throwing a baseball or running, you hire a coach. Mm -hmm. Like it's normal to have coaching for Sports or trainers Sports. or all those things. Totally. Yeah. And there's still a lot of taboo around having a trainer for your brain. And that's the most important thing you have. It <laughs> is. It's your biggest asset. And so I, uh, I actually went through some real management difficulty 
agencies when I was launching Sama because I, you know, I had this like battlefield mentality from a lot of tough experiences in childhood and, and coming through, you know, college. And so I had this like warrior mentality that I'd bring into the office and like create arguments with my team and, and not be the most empathetic manager. And it took a lot of, I think, hard lessons learned. A lot of people basically telling me like, you're a terrible manager, you need to change your style for me to finally realize that I should see a coach. And mm -hmm. so I started, I did executive coaching, I did therapy, even when I couldn't afford it, I found like low income, you know, like therapists who would take on lower income people when yeah. I was struggling at the beginning of my entrepreneurship journey. And I just cannot stress enough how important that is. And like, the discussion, to, have, to be able to see someone as successful and together as you are, that you've gone through that, I think it's, I, I appreciate the, the sharing. It's, I think it's, it's so helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. But talk to me also about the meditation, because mm -hmm. coaching and, and you know, low-income coaching is still pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, but talk to me about meditation. Absolutely. So I read a bunch of books on, on Buddhist meditation. Mm -hmm. There's... Um, there's a great book by Pema Chodron that really helped me. It's called um, Buddhist Wisdom for Hard Times or something like that. Mm -hmm. And basically, a lot of the concepts of, of Buddhism, which are very similar to a lot of the readings that I've, like what Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day from the Catholic tradition have said about Catholicism, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the world's great religions say the same thing, which is that it's important to have contemplative time yeah. to reflect on the fact that the world is much bigger than just you and that actually the idea that we're separate is kind of an illusion. We are all part of a bigger scheme of life. And if you reflect on that and realize that, okay, my struggle today is actually not that important because I'm part of this, I'm basically inextricably intertwined with this person who's really succeeding and with you know the person I'm in a difficult relationship with and with the person I'm managing who I'm struggling with, like we're all part of the same being in a way. Yeah. And, um, and, and so if you zoom out enough and realize that you're just a tiny piece in a larger whole, that can be a very cathartic feeling, especially if you're just so, if your mind is so caught up in your current struggle. And, uh, and then the, the ego around that struggle, that's mm -hmm. so much, so much ego. And I think the Buddhist tradition does a really nice job of dealing with ego. Gotta park that stuff. But Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. No, and, and it's free. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a free tool. You can use it at any time. Um, and so a lot of those readings helped me. I started meditating. I try to meditate even if it's like 10 minutes a day. Um, I started going to church. I, I started going to Glide um, here in San Francisco. And I feel like for a lot of people, you know, prayer can be that form of meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's not about the religious tradition, it's about finding that quiet, contemplative time to reflect on the fact that you are not alone, that you are part of a universe that is really in, in many ways a single whole. Yeah. And that can just be so, you know, so heartwarming when you feel isolated and alone. It is. Uh, any habits that you would recommend or that you've adopted in your course of um, taking care of yourself and, and then helping with mac maximum performance? So this sounds so cheesy, but when I'm really struggling and I'm feeling really low, even writing down 10 things that I am grateful for that I feel like are gifts in my life. You know, okay, like once I literally wrote down like, my hair is actually pretty good. Like I feel good about the way my hair looks. I love it. It sounds so cheesy, but no. I was like, okay, this is one thing that like, you know, even when the shit is hitting the fan, I can feel good about my hair. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I wrote once about my, my dad, who's just like, we, we struggled in our relationships sometimes, but I just know that he will always be there. And he has this like essentially, you know, deeply kind heart. And, and so just reflecting on whatever gifts they might be. Like, I don't know what it might, your cat, like the fact that you have a car that you like that doesn't break down, whatever it might be. But there's all this evidence 
evidence now that shows that when you focus your brain on thoughts around gratitude, um, you can get out of that funk. Um, and there's even a special meditation that Buddhists do called Tonglen meditation, which involves literally visualizing that you are inhaling the pain of someone else. It can be a particular person or group of people. So maybe you're like thinking about your aunt who has cancer or something. So you literally visualize that you're inhaling her pain with every in-breath and exhaling warmth and compassion and like transforming that pain in your heart into warmth and compassion. And this sounds so cheesy and new agey, no, I know. It but it works, yeah. it totally works. And if you do that for five minutes, like whatever situation you might be in, you feel instantly better. It's like a drug. <laughs> so. But so Tonglen is, is really it's helpful. It's free and available also. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things uh, uh, Tim Ferris, mutual friend of ours, actually the person who introduced us, I remember this now, um, he, well, he studied in Tools of Titans, the number one thread that connected the 200 people that he sat down with in this sort of conversation was meditation, some mm -hmm. form of mindfulness. does not surprise me that that is correlated so highly with high performers. Um, anything else? Any other habits? I think I love the gratitude meditation. Um, anything else? Therapy. Therapy. So I, I also think that like physical expressions of um, frustration can be really helpful. So sometimes I just need to run out my problem, like go and like just run really hard for twenty minutes or. 30 minutes, you know, and just like yeah. get it out. <laughs> and no, I think everyone can relate to that feeling of needing to just like punch a wall sometimes. Yeah. So sometimes the only expression that works for me is is physical and even like, you know, going to a dance class or something, but definitely something that has like rhythm where I feel like there's like impact. Um, yeah. can Physicality really is, I, I, I grew up as an athlete and I can either use it to get out of a funk or use it to never get in one, and the choice is mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if I'm exercising every day, it's, it, it provides this sort of inner strength, and I realize that there is a correlation if I'm not doing, not taking care of myself, and in this case, it's sort of the, the physicality part, that I just tend to be in a funk more often. So mm -hmm. um, that's super helpful. Thank you for sharing those things. and. Um, the story that you have, that is the arc of your life, is incredible. We feel <laughs> so lucky to have you. Congrats on the major New York Times piece. That's Thank you. stunning. And before we go, I want to tap into the new book that's coming out. I might beg you to come back on the show when it's actually dropping in September. But for folks at home, give us, give us the preview. It's called... Give Work. Give Work. Mm -hmm. And it should be out in September. And it's... Is it your whole story or is it a how-to guide? Give us a little bit of context. Yeah, it's a mix of like the story of founding Sama and getting through that struggle and, and also a call to action around changing the way that we think about poverty and how to fix it from a handout mentality to an empowering give work mentality. Lila, thank you so <laughs> much for being on the show. My pleasure. <laughs> With for that, me. yeah, where, where can the people find you? What's your coordinates? Uh, I'm lilajana.com and I'm lilajana.com. And I'm on Facebook, social media. I do Facebook Live office hours every Sunday. So Every Sunday? Every nice. Sunday. I try to. I need to I probably need to change that to a different day of the week to nice. not be stressed out on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> My super, pleasure. super excited to have you. And with that, I'll see you again probably tomorrow. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. 
on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.